This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr Hilary Guide. This month, we'll be looking back at medical research in 2023. Our editors have each picked one article out of around a thousand articles that they've edited or written this year. The stories that they've chosen cover some form of risk. So we'll be asking, should we be concerned that a common sweetener may cause DNA damage? How worrying is the near doubling of bowel cancer cases in younger people? And how much risk are men prepared to take to prevent their partners becoming pregnant? Where is that promised male contraceptive pill? But is all risk bad? And what risk do we take in the pursuit of fun and why? Before we begin, I want to take a moment to thank you for listening. It means a lot to me, Maria and Yaz, and the entire Medical News Today team. If you like what we do, please hit the subscribe or follow button. It means you'll get a notification and won't miss out when we release future episodes. Thank you, and let's get started. Today, I'm joined by podcast regulars, Maria Kahoot. Hi, I'm Maria Kahoot. I'm the Features Editor at Medical News Today, and I'm very happy to be in conversation with my colleagues today. Hello, hello. Uh, I'm Yasmin Nicholas-Sky. I'm the Global News Editor at Medical News Today, and I'm UK-based. Welcome back to you two. And we have a newbie to the podcast. Hi there, I'm Andrea Rice. I'm based on the other side of the pond in North Carolina in the US, and I'm also a Global News Editor with Medical News Today and with Healthline. Fantastic. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. And thank you all of you. I know it's such a busy time of the year for taking the time to make a really difficult choice of just one piece of research that caught your eye this year. And interestingly, all of you chose topics that I think in some way relate to risk, risk of harm to our health. But since this is a festive podcast, let's kick off with finding out what risk we are prepared to take for fun. So this is to flush out our own risk thermostats or risk proneness. And where does that lie? So who wants to start? I can start. So I don't do this very often now. I would like to get back into it more. But one of my hobbies is bouldering. So basically indoor rock climbing. So I guess that's the riskiest thing that I have voluntarily done. Um, And fun fact, I got into it to learn to cope with my fear of heights. And it works. Wow. Oh, I love it. Who's next? Well, I'm trying to think of things that are appropriate to say on air. And I'm kind of... (laughs) (laughs) running out of options me too (laughs) oh no I didn't realize I had such adventurous colleagues I love my teammates this is great (laughs) I don't know um maybe I don't know I like adrenaline so like bouldering those kind of things are really exciting but maybe roller coasters that could possibly be a very risky thing. I'm not really into extreme sports. I'm too clumsy for that. But yeah, maybe that. Like there, there is a certain amount of risk, but I think the payoff, the adrenaline is worth it. And Andrea? Mm, I think I was more of an adrenaline junkie in my youth. Uh, these days, I like both feet planted firmly on the ground. 
But if we're talking about risky behaviors in general, and this is a festive podcast, I'm comfortable with saying that I enjoy a glass of wine from time to time. And, you know, we work in health, so we read all the research about why any amount of alcohol may not be good for you long term. I am of the camp that a little in moderation is probably healthy for me personally, but that is probably my risky behavior that I flirt with from time to time, knowing that maybe it's not, you know, good long term, but I don't know. I think nothing wrong with a glass of wine here and there. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one. (laughs) (laughs) And what I do, or I did, I used to do whitewater kayaking. Wow. And the highest grade river, they go from one to five. So one is kind of flat. Um, Five is like, you just have a death wish. So, but I got up to grade four, raging rivers. So I did it. Why did I do it? Um, I didn't think about work while I was nearly <laughs> risking my life. <laughs> so um, anyway, so we've got here a full range of risk thermostats. So let's get going with the other part of risk, which is perception of risk. So we've got kind of our risk proneness. And then as journalists, we're talking and helping people with their risk perception. So let's start with Yaz, your article about DNA damage from an artificial sweetener. Now, here's a risky thing. Can you summarise the findings of the study in one minute? Yes. So some of you or a lot of you might already be aware of this because this kind of article made headlines all over the world. It was sucralose. It's linked to DNA damage and cancer. So everybody was on high alert. They were like, oh, what are we going to do? But basically, this study, it was on sucralose and sucralose 6-acetate, which is a metabolite of sucralose. And the researchers found that in certain doses, it was linked to inflammation, oxidative stress, and possibly DNA damage, which could lead to cancer. But of course, all the headlines kind of were like, oh yes, Splenda, for example, which the main ingredient is sucralose, it causes cancer. But that was like a big jump. So that was basically it. But I need to point out that the artificial sweetener that was tested in this study was not actually Splenda, but that's just the most popular brand nowadays. I heard from Splenda about this article They wanted to make sure that we were clear that Splenda breaks down its active ingredient of sucralose 6-acetate during its manufacturing process. No amount of that chemical or compound is left in the Splenda that is then sold to consumers. But more importantly, I'm curious, and obviously, Yaz, this isn't a question you can answer, but just curious in general why there is such little research about the cancer-causing effects of artificial sweeteners in humans when we are aware that there are so many potential health risks involved with consuming too much sugar in general. Just curious what your thoughts are. Well, I think kind of testing these on people, there's ethical challenges, of course, If you want to see the long-term effects of consuming artificial sweeteners, that's going to be hard. And even this study, for example, it was in vitro. So it wasn't in vivo, it wasn't in humans, it wasn't in living beings, it was in cell-based cultures. But of course, the same effect when it was translated to humans, for the average human, if we say we're 70 kilograms, that would kind of equate to 18 litres of sucralose sweetened beverages daily. So like 
the amount that we would have to consume to kind of have that harmful effect on our health, for example, it's astronomical numbers. It's not what a normal human being drinks anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not sure. It could be also research on such things. You don't get enough funding mm. or you get corporate obstacles. Yes, yes. But what you said before about needing to consume such an extreme amount for it to have any long-term cancer-causing effects is really interesting because the WHO recently classified aspartame, right, as a class B potential carcinogen. Of course, all the headlines were then aspartame causes cancer. And this was around the same time or not too long after this study came out. So then there had to be clarification in the conversation after the fact that, hey, class B carcinogen is kind of like you would need to consume so much of this compound in order for it to have that kind of effect. But I think the worry is legitimate, though. I'm just remembering my grandma who had type 2 diabetes. And at the time, the most common sweetener for her to use was aspartame. And so I remember we constantly had aspartame in our house. But I think for a long time, people lived with the idea that it was okay to put this in all sorts of foods and beverages. Yeah, like here, I think what's important is this artificial sweetener, sucralose. It's 600 times sweeter than table sugar. So that it's a very sweet thing. So you already use smaller amounts. But I think it boils down to the dose makes the poison. So everything in moderation. You've kind of got to strike a balance between consuming these because sometimes it's not possible to kind of get rid of all of the products with these because nowadays it's in so many things. It's in cakes and snacks and beverages of all sorts. So in a world like this, it's kind of hard to avoid a lot of products with these. That's interesting you mentioned that because I've got a list here of about eight different things it's in, like chewing gum, salad dressings, barbecue sauces, sugar-free jams that are supposedly healthy. On what we know about this study, so it was an in vitro, in the lab study, and it was about a metabolite of sucrose, and it did cause DNA damage at the dose that they tested. Where are you on the scale of would you change your behaviour in response to that sort of finding? Hmm. Like when we look at the kind of wider repercussions of it, and when you actually look at the dose you would need to see that effect in yourself, it's not really that much of a cause for concern. But as a kind of health first consumer, I already believe that I shouldn't consume many artificial sweeteners anyway. I would much rather go for a natural alternative instead. Yeah, grapes and dates. Yeah, yeah. But I think as the average consumer, I would probably be more wary. I would try to slowly maybe weed out a lot of the products that contain this and go over a lot of the stuff that I usually consume that contain this. Now that's interesting. So I would probably put Yaz on as our most adrenaline junkie person on the panel going, let's be a bit cautious here, folks. (laughs) (laughs) It's very nuanced, the research, but... Let's just go for that. Yeah. Now, Andrea, let's move on to your pick. So you looked at the increasing risk of bowel cancer in young people. Can you summarise that research? Yes. This was a big topic this year because 
I think researchers are really looking at why is this happening? So early onset cancer is defined as being diagnosed with cancer under the age of 50. For bowel cancer, colorectal cancer, the current recommendations to begin screening is at 45. And we're seeing this huge increase in colon and rectal cancer incidence in people under 55. It's doubled over the past 20 years from 11% to 20%. And so we're wondering... Why is this happening? This particular study, it was published in May of this year, identified some key symptoms that were associated with an increased risk of early onset colon cancer. So this piece was very friendly for the consumer because they could identify, oh, I'm having these symptoms. You know, even though I'm only 43, hypothetically, maybe I should ask my doctor because... I'm experiencing one or more of these symptoms. And the four symptoms that they had identified included abdominal pain, anorectal bleeding, diarrhea, and iron deficiency anemia. So some of these may be especially abdominal pain. A lot of people live with kind of chronic abdominal pain, especially people that might have irritable bowel syndrome. Just knowing like, hmm, Maybe this is something I need to ask my doctor about. Maybe get that colonoscopy a little bit earlier just to be on the safe side. So just a lot of really helpful, actionable information in this particular article. The thing that shocked me the most when this article came out and I read it was exactly this list of four symptoms, because these are just really common things. Diarrhea is not uncommon. Iron deficiency anemia is not uncommon. And what was emphasized in the study was that having just one of these symptoms could almost double your risk of colon cancer, which to me was shocking. And so I guess, yeah, my question is the question that everybody's asking, why is this happening? Like, what are some of the hypotheses about why colon cancer might be on the rise in younger people? Yeah, actually, it may be attributed to just being a byproduct of how we live and work. You know, most of us engaged in any type of knowledge work where you're sitting all day, there's going to be health consequences. So lifestyle factors play a role. Diet plays a role. Of course, a person's health history and even family history of colon cancer can also play a role. So Risk factors include anything from having obesity or diabetes, eating excess processed foods, processed red meat. By excess, researchers have defined this as maybe two or more times per week. Drinking too much alcohol, there's that risky behavior. Smoking cigarettes and other factors could be anything from having high cholesterol, And also your biological sex can play a role. So colon cancer is more common in males than females. Racial disparities also exist with colon cancer. Some of that may be lack of resources, such as adequate testing and screening, or low socioeconomic status, the inability to get screened for something like colon cancer, you know. Yeah, or that affects diet also. Mm -hmm. So a lot of factors going on here to contribute to that increase. Yeah, and I feel I just need to underline that this study looked at a large cohort in the United States, so a Western culture. So I guess the thoughts that I was immediately having is, do we in the West have 
a poor diet? Do we not pay enough attention to what we put in our bodies when we eat? Is it socioeconomic factors, which you were both referring to just a moment ago, where a lot of people just can't afford to eat more healthy foods? I think these are all valid points. Yeah, I just want to pick up something about scale here, though, because it was reported that it had gone from 11% to 20%, so kind of like doubling. But that was a proportion of the total colorectal cancer. They weren't absolute risks. It's actually a proportion of cancers is going up in that age group. And part of that is because the cancers in the older age group are going down because colonoscopy is removing precancerous polyps. And so the rate in under 50s is about 33 per 100,000 compared to nearly 250 in the over 85. So the scale of the risk is actually quite important. It is quite low. So my question is, where do we pitch this absolute risk increase? We often... As journalists, we're reporting a relative increase. You know, one per 100,000 up to two per 100,000 is a 100% increase, but it's tiny. How do we play with that? How do we work that into raising an alarm when it's needed without overstating risks? Yeah, of course. It's an important question because so much of, like you said, what we report on is based on the risk being kind of marginal, even if it appears on the surface to be alarming. But I think knowing risk factors, being able to identify signs and symptoms, being able to talk to your doctor, when you read stories like this, and we don't want to put the fear in everybody and make everybody worry, but I think it can be an illuminating experience to be like, huh, maybe I've had this abdominal pain going on for X amount of time. Maybe I should talk to my doctor about it. I think the more health information and news that you read, the more maybe willing you become to take action. Because I think most of us probably would rather that nothing's wrong, or we just live in constant or chronic discomfort or pain, and we ignore it. And I think it's really important to acknowledge when we're in discomfort and in pain and get medical professionals' opinion about it. But we don't have to just read something like this and go, oh my God, do I have colon cancer? But rather, I think I might ask my doctor about this. Yeah, and I think when it comes to cancer, it pays to be proactive. It pays to err on the side of caution. It pays to be screened. Yes, exactly. And the earlier you catch it, the easier it is. Like I've seen it in my family. The early catcher is the survivor and the person that wasn't is gone. So I think it's always good to be a little more cautious when it comes to cancer. Agreed. You can't be too cautious. In the States, you mentioned that screening starts at 45. In the UK, I think it's still at 60. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's every two years. Between 2021 and 2025, they're gradually reducing to 50 to 59. So it's still not down at 45. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think it's important to say, first of all, both that what Hillary is talking about is when people automatically get recommended for a screening. That is the age at which they get called in. But as you were saying, Andrea, 
it's so important to be aware of our own bodies and the risks and when we feel discomfort to go and seek that medical attention. And that's exactly it. There's nothing stopping any of us from going to see a physician if we feel that we have symptoms that are affecting our quality of life. It doesn't even have to be alarmist like, oh, I think I have colon cancer. But any sort of symptom, if it's affecting your quality of life and your ability to feel fully yourself, it's important to go and investigate that. Okay, good. So let's move on now to a different type of risk, taking the risk of pregnancy out of sex. Maria, you wrote a feature looking at why the long-hoped-for male contraceptive pill has not yet materialised. This has been going on for years. What did you find out? Oh, wow. Where do I even start? This is a huge topic. As people with uteruses, we have the contraceptive pill, um, either the combination pill or the mini pill, which is progesterone only. And we've had it since the 60s. So how come men haven't had it, even though there have been studies about male contraceptives since the 70s? And I think, of course, the conclusion that some of us might be tempted to jump to is there's no male contraceptive pill because we live in a patriarchal society and men just don't want it. <laughs> men just don't want it. They're not interested in taking a pill. They'd much rather have this burden of preventing pregnancy placed on their female partners. And as it turns out, that's not really true or it doesn't seem to be true. So one person I spoke to was Steve Kretschmer, who's the founder of a consultancy firm that serves the health development sector. And what this consultancy firm did was to speak to men from the United States, Cote d'Ivoire, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Nigeria, Bangladesh, India and Vietnam. So he wanted both a cohort from a high-income country and then cohorts from middle and low-income countries. And he spoke to all of these men. It was well over 15,000 men in total, as well as their female partners, to find out, do they want new contraceptive technologies? Would they be open to taking a contraceptive pill? And the overwhelming response, the majority said yes. We would like to have alternative options other than just condoms, which aren't always the safest method. They can break. Things can happen. They're not well tolerated by everybody, male or female, because people have various allergies to the materials that condoms are made from or the spermicides and lubricants that condoms are covered in. So these aren't a good option for everybody. Then we've got vasectomies, which are also not a good option for everybody. First of all, they're invasive, and that can be an obstacle. And secondly, even though vasectomies are reversible safely, it doesn't follow that reversal results in a pregnancy. So that was just a long-winded way to say men want alternative options. What intrigued me about all of these was a lot of these trials were stopped by the researchers or the funders after they saw that men had a lot of side effects. So one of them, for example, was mood disorders like depression. So my question is, we have something on the market already that causes such side effects, but we're subjecting millions of women to take these. But why can't men do that? And then they stop everything. So what do you think is the main reason behind this? 
So maybe one of the trials that you're referring to is one that was published in 2016. They published results of a phase one and two clinical trial where the drug did indeed seem effective, but it was stopped due to the side effects. But it wasn't stopped by the participants. Mm -hmm. um, so reportedly over 70% of the participants said that despite the side effects, they would still take this contraceptive. But what happened was that the independent review unit that was reviewing the study results said, well, we can't really have these side effects like severe mood changes, which, as you said, does happen on the contraceptive pills that women take. So I've spoken to a few researchers and all of them, men and women, they have unanimously indicated to me that what's happened is that our standards for around the world when we approve a medication have changed. Rules have tightened that expectations have become higher and only the medications that really don't have lasting and severe side effects will go through to approval, which was not the case when our contraceptive pills were initially approved. But the reason why we're still taking these contraceptive pills as women and people with female reproductive systems, that's up for debate. I think one of the researchers that I interviewed said they thought this was happening because this is what we have and now we're used to it. And it kind of works. And so we're continuing with these contraceptives for half of the world's population. But now that the rules of the game have changed in research and the approval of drugs, it means that it's much harder to get a new pill approved unless it ticks a lot of boxes. Interesting. I would bet that we have the technology and resources to create a male oral contraceptive that is safe with minimal side effects. I mean, if we can manufacture and prove the safety of a COVID-19 vaccine in a short time frame, certainly we have the ability from a science perspective to create this contraceptive. I just want to, as a quick aside, this brought to mind an episode of a Canadian show called Working Moms. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's on Netflix. I recently became a working mom myself, so I started watching it. It's actually very funny. And there is a bit about male oral contraceptives. And the lead character is a publicist on the show, and she has a client who's in pharmaceuticals, and he's trying to bring this male oral contraceptive to market and is meeting all these roadblocks hitting on these exact points. Men are skeptical of it. You know, the patriarchy is standing in the way. And a funny perspective that the show brought in was that from the inverse side of things, the um, females in the show were like, I'm not sure I could trust a man oh, to take I was his, thinking that. his contraceptive at the, at the same time every day. Like, and that I thought was just a funny spin. According to the survey that Steve Kretschmer conducted, which also included female partners of these male respondents, most of the female partners said they would trust their partners to be able to stick to it. I guess it's a real worry, but it's also my perspective is if you're not going to be able to trust your partner to do it, then... Maybe you need a different partner. <laughs> 
you need a different partner, yeah. Yeah, and I was just going to say, this only works in a kind of consensual, committed relationship. This does not work for casual settings. Exactly, exactly. Like just taking the pill, it does not prevent STIs. Condoms, everyone. (laughs) Yes, we need to be safe. You need a barrier method. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? This is just brilliant because I was just about to ask you all what your take-home messages were. So, yes, it's condoms all the way around. (laughs) Anything else you want to have as a take-home message? Um, Anything you read about health when you see these negative results, these risks, always take it with a grain of salt. But I think it always pays off to be a little more cautious and just read more, do your research. But yeah, like better to err on the safe side. And that's from an adrenaline junkie. Excellent. Maria. Yes. (laughs) Um, my takeaway is actually to Andrea's point from just now, we do have the technology to create these new drugs. And I think the pressure is on to make this happen, hopefully sooner rather than later. And Andrea is our newbie guest. What's your take home message? Hmm. You know, I believe very strongly in just being proactive with your health and your well-being. You know, don't Google symptoms and self-diagnose, but rather read information that's trustworthy, that's evidence-based, and then talk to your doctor and say, hey, I'm wondering if this might be going on. And it might even prompt them to administer screening or testing that they might not have otherwise because you brought to them a more well-rounded picture of what was going on with you. You know your body best. You need to monitor yourself and you should know when something's off. And check your poop, people. Always oh, <laughs> check your poop. But you need to. Oh, yeah. Yes, check it. You need to, everything needs to be regular as well. So you will know when something is off and be like, hey, maybe I should go to the doctor. So, so check your poop, wear yes. condoms. <laughs> yes. Go to the doctor and speak up about what you want to happen. Advocate for yourself. Exactly. Brilliant. All right. Thank you all very much for coming. Maria Kahoot, Yasmin Sakai and Andrea Rice. Thank you all very much. Much love to everyone. Yes. (laughs) This was fun. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. Please hit that subscribe or follow button on your regular podcast platform to follow us. Healthlines in conversation for medical news today. We'll be back again next year. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a Hivis Radio production for Medical News Today. Healthy holidays! Healthy holidays! <laughs> Happy holidays! We do love a lot of laughing. <laughs>